0: Nino Scalia, and our guest today is Roger Carstens, who currently serves as the United States Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. He previously served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Department of State's Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. Mr. Carstens is a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel who served in Special Forces and the 1st Ranger Battalion. He is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and holds master's degrees from the U.S. Naval War College and St. John's College. Roger Carstens, welcome to Madison's Notes.
1: Nino, thank you for this kind introduction, Uh, more than I deserved, and it's also good to see you again. Uh, we, We constantly talked over, I think, a course of a year or two about getting together. I think COVID kind of thwarted that, so it's a pleasure to be sitting just a few feet away from you and having this conversation, so thank you.
0: Well, it's good to have you uh, on the show, and especially good to see you in person. We're going to travel back in time. 17, 18-year-old Roger Carstens. He's trying to decide if he's going to go to college, if so, where he's going to go to college, and he settles on West Point. Why?
1: So, that actually, uh, that path started in 1975. I was 11 years old, and uh, growing up in Spokane, Washington... And at that time, uh, they had two newspapers, really run by the same company. The, the one in the morning was the Spokesman Review. The one in the evening was the Spokesman Chronicle. Uh, I would also read Newsweek and Time Magazine, uh, again, at age 11. But I had a hunger for international affairs and foreign policy. And at that young age, I read about the Cambodian genocide. Hmm. And at, I guess that's something where at that age, you, you don't read something for interest. You read something, and actually, it has like a, a hurting effect on you. And I felt very pained that so many people could die and lose their lives, and yet there was no organization out there that was trying to do something about it. And even at that age, I started to think to myself, you know, what what could I do or who could I join that could stop something like that happening in the future? Now, back then, I didn't know about the United Nations. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about NGOs. I never really considered at age 11 to follow a career path that might lead me into being a journalist who could, you know, impact people by, by good reporting. Uh, but what I did know was... There was something called the U.S. Army out there, and to my mind, they liberated uh, Europe. Oh, once or twice. Um, I followed some of the other things that they did, and I looked on the U.S. Army as uh, a force of good that could stop evil out there. Uh, and as I, I think I got closer to deciding what to do with my life, well, um, I'm almost embarrassed to admit that. But I think at a certain point, it was either going to UCLA and studying drama, or going to West Point, and you know, you can see where I am today. But. Uh, yeah, I went to West Point because I felt like it was a path that would allow me to uh, take care of those people that are being oppressed. Mm-hmm. And as it's turned out, in a way, there's been a line of continuity between whether uh, I was an infantry officer uh, or whether I was a special forces officer. Uh, the motto of special forces is de oppresso liber, to free the oppressed. Mm-hmm. And then working for uh, an NGO in Somalia and one in Jordan. And then later on at the Department of State, working in Democracy, Human Rights and Labor, the Bureau of and also hot I think that I've tried to keep that alive and that um, I'm interested in that Special Forces motto to free the oppressed, to take care of those who are less fortunate, whether they're vulnerable and needy because of lack of food or whether they're being oppressed politically. Yeah. Um, I, I've enjoyed a life where I've tried to align my values with what it is I do for a living. Haven't always hit it 100%, but I'm grateful to be here at the State Department following something which is in, in, to me, in line with what I read when I was 11 years old and in line with my attendance at West Point.
0: Did you have family members who served in the military?
1: You know, my father was a, a, a naval officer. Uh, he left the Navy in 1972 after eight years of service. Um, he missed it, so he went back into the Naval Reserve and, and served until the rank of captain. Uh, and he was always, i got to be honest, an inspiration. So he may not have been active duty, But I was impressed by the things that he did in his reserve career. And, of course, even as a a young boy, I would pour through his uh, essentially yearbooks of his aircraft carrier, the USS Ranger, uh, that he uh, deployed to Vietnam uh, on. So I think think part of that was, uh, you know, my dad's, uh, I guess, example that he set for me.
0: Sure. Now, the great historian Andrew Roberts says that when you're talking about someone's life, you should do it chronologically because that's the way it was lived, which seems like good advice to me. So in a minute, we'll turn to what you're doing right now at the State Department as the Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs. Between West Point and this current position, what were you doing? You already alluded to a little bit of it, but can you tell us a little bit sure. more? First off, went to
1: the infantry, where um, I, I really appreciate the chance to serve with uh, you know, ground combat troops. Uh, I went from a mechanized infantry unit to the 1st Ranger Battalion. Uh, where I participated in the combat parachute assault uh, on the uh, Trios airfield Mm. during the invasion of Panama. Um, When I was a captain, a junior captain, I transferred into special forces by going through the special forces qualification uh, course. And uh, prior to that, their assessment selection process. And then for the next 16 years in the Army of a 20-year career, I I spent 16 in special forces, uh, serving uh, five years in Germany, one year in Sarajevo and of course having to suffer through a Pentagon tour, which frankly was actually very interesting to me. I, 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 did, uh, I had a legislative affairs assignment, so even though I was an active duty Green Beret at the rank of Lieutenant Colonel, I spent three years talking to members of Congress and their staffs uh, as a way of liaisoning between uh, the, the Secretary of Defense and those on Capitol Hill. Um, after, I, after I left the Army, I went to a think tank for a year, uh, the Center for New American Secure, Security. Um, had a wonderful time met some incredible people. Um, had a chance to, to do some of the thinking and writing that I was hoping to do. Um, but after about a year or so, uh, I realized that it may not just be the best fit for me. I think um, as much as I enjoyed reading, writing, and thinking, I think I needed to actually go out and do more. Um, but I left with a, f- a profound appreciation of those think tank professionals that are out there trying to create those fully formed policy opera- uh, uh, options. For leaders to execute when they don't have time to do some of the hardcore thinking themselves, so huge fan of the think tank arena, but I just didn't think it was for me. So from there, I spent uh, two t- roughly—I could just truncate it and say three and a half years in Afghanistan, working as a an advisor to uh, Generals McChrystal, Petraeus, Dunford, and Allen uh, in the counterinsurgency realm, working with a really unique organization called the Counterinsurgency Advisory and Assistance Team where think of about like 50 to 70 people, uh, mainly former Green Berets, SEALs, but also lawyers, development professionals, uh, people trying to take a look at the full spectrum of counterinsurgency to get a sense for how we're doing and what could be operationalized. Um, you could almost picture uh, one of our people on a patrol out in Nangarhar who, after it was done, could say, Lieutenant, you did a great job here, but here's a trick that some of your buddies are using up in Helmand or to take a look at how rule of law is affecting uh, counterinsurgency efforts in Herat, you know, an organization that tried to take a look at the full spectrum. But uh, partially through that, that phase there, two years into that three and a half years I spent in Afghanistan, I was frustrated with how the war in Afghanistan was going. And I, I just felt with 168,000 troops and all the money that we were spending, we weren't getting the right bang for the buck. We weren't really progressing in this counterinsurgency that I think I personally thought might be fought better with few troops and less money. Hmm. So I took a year and a half off um, and went to Somalia and I wanted to see how Amazon was actually fighting Al-Shabaab. And uh, Somalia actually ended up doing two things, but suffice it to say, I think I learned a little bit about um, you know how they were trying to progress in their war. Uh, they did so much differently and I thought at times quite effectively. And then after about a year and a half in Somalia, I, I did what any sensible man would do, and I headed back to Afghanistan and spent another year trying to see if I could uh, maybe try to combine what I'd learned previously with what I learned in Somalia and then also apply a full career as a Green Beret to like uh, how we're pursuing the counterinsurgency uh, uh, effort. At that point, after roughly, I guess, about five years at war and after a career as a counterinsurgent-insurgent uh, U.S. Army officer, I guess I gave up on my thought of ever writing the great counterinsurgency book. I think when I was in Afghanistan, my idea was that I would figure out what the science is behind winning these wars. And I found that the more I knew, the less I knew. Hmm. And I think by the time I left Afghanistan on my second tour there, uh, again, having put three and a half years in Afghanistan, year and a half in Somalia, I came to the conclusion that I was not competent enough to write a book on counterinsurgency. Because the uh, factors involved in, in trying to win a battle like that, I think, require something more than science. Hmm. I think it requires intuition. It requires a, a feel of the battlefield that uh, can't necessarily be broken down into science. And it really also reminded me that the, the, the so-called master of war, Karl von Clausewitz, in a way kind of got it right. That there's an art and science to war. And I think nowadays we kind of blow off the, the art part of it. Hmm. And I was always mindful of something Clausewitz said, that, that generals uh, often see something that the rest of us can't, a far distant light that they will pursue, knowing that the, most of the people around them don't see it may actually be going in the other direction. Hmm. And so with that in mind, um, I, took, uh, I, I actually decided to take a year and a half off and go to St. John's uh, to read the great books. Now, it was my second master's degree, and it might seem like a strange thing to do at that time. But I think by the time I was done with five years at war, I really wanted to get away from just counterinsurgency and think more about the human condition. You know, what does it mean to be a person on Earth? How do I connect with my God? What do these other people think about uh, the things that are meaningful to me, like how I relate to people? What's my role in society? What do societies do for us? You know, the the, the social contract, so to speak. And so for a year and a half, I I enjoyed uh, my time at St. John's reading the great books. And uh, I I actually walked away from that feeling uh, strangely more peaceful Hmm. about my role in society and what it is I should be doing and how I should be living my life, to the point that I felt like I, in a way, wasted wasted my West Point education because some of the things that you study at St. John's, you actually study at West Point. But I may not have been mature enough or I may have been drowning in calculus or statistics or... You know, some of the other courses that we took, and I didn't have a time to really appreciate what they were trying to teach me at West Point. But in St. John's, having a chance to stop, read, and think, I think it allowed me to connect with uh, a part of me that I've grown to really appreciate and like. And I think St. John's also taught me that that journey, uh, and this is no shock, the journey never ceases. You know, whether uh, an agnostic, a Christian, a Buddhist, or whether you just like to read the great books... You know, uh, I think the, the job is to keep progressing as a person, to grow in the ways that you feel that you need to grow. And I appreciated the role that St. John's uh, played in that. And then briefly after that, I spent a year and a half in Jordan, putting food boxes uh, across the border from Jordan into Syria to help feed the people of Dara and Kenitra. And uh, from there, I, I ended up at the Department of State where we first met. That's right. When I walked into the uh, Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights and Labor, And later into the special presidential envoy for hostage affairs. That is my extremely long answer to that very beautifully short question (laughs) last week.
0: Well, it's an excellent answer, and it brings us where we need to go. Currently, special presidential envoy for hostage affairs. We're here at the State Department, so I need to call you by your proper title, the Spiha. What is the SPIHA? What does the SPIHA do?
1: So the SPIHA is in charge of getting, uh, I guess, uh, marshalling the diplomatic resources of the U.S. government to bring Americans home that are being held hostage or who are wrongfully detained. Brief definition. A hostage is someone taken by a, like a terrorist organization, like Al-Qaeda or J.N.M. in Africa. A wrongful detainee is a person that's taken by a foreign government. It could be Russia, China, Iran. Uh, in a way that a government's trying to use someone who most likely is innocent, and they're trying to use them for political leverage against the United States in order to get a policy change or some sort of concession. So uh, I have the pleasure of working with uh, people within this entire department who already have uh, U.S. policy directions that they're trying to push. I have the, the good fortune of working with people in the interagency from the Department of Defense to the intelligence community to the Department of Treasury. And what we're all trying to do is to find any way we can to get people back that's moral, ethical, and doesn't violate our no concessions policy. And uh, it's, it's a good job, but it's, a, it's not a fun job. Uh, and I'm probably more happy to extrapolate more, but I will say that if you were to ask me what it is I do on a day-to-day basis, I break it down into three areas. Number one, I search tirelessly to get people home from are being wrongfully held around the world. So, bring people home. Number two, I take care of their families. you know. I spend probably an hour to four hours a day, every day, talking to family members, interacting with them on emails, or flying out to see them. I just spent uh, a week on the road in Texas visiting six different families. We've gone to Kiev. We've gone to uh, Massachusetts, California. If a family's a SPIHA case, we're coming to see you, we're gonna sit down and talk to you, and we're going to hear your story, let you know how we're gonna try to get your loved one home, and then give you a sense of, uh, I guess, empathy and love that the government's not this cold, distant voice on the end of the phone saying trite words like we're deeply concerned, or this is a number one priority. Instead, you have a human who cares about this, who's passionate, empathetic, committed, and we're gonna hang with with you on the phone and cry with you, we're gonna come see you. But at the end of the day, we're gonna be brutally transparent. Whether it's good news or bad news, we're gonna tell you what we're doing on this case uh, up to the point that we can't, because of security uh, uh, reasons, because we feel like the the families are actually partners in this. You know, clearly as the government guy, my job is to get the person home. Clearly, but you got to partner with the family because sometimes they have the right solution. You know, we don't have the, uh, the uh, all the brilliant ideas. In fact, I've told families that sometimes when I walk into the State Department and put on a suit, I feel like I surrender some of my creativity whereas the family members who are wrestling with this day in and day out, they at times come up with a solution that we end up pursuing. So we try to partner with the families, and that allows us to, in a way, take a step into that third thing I try to do, and that is I try to build out what we call the hostage recovery enterprise. Uh, And I do that right now by implementing the 2020 uh, Levinson Act. It was passed on the 28th of December last year, and it kind of gave us a... Uh, I guess you could say a roadmap for how best to build out this enterprise. And uh, I would say that I'm grateful to Congress for providing that legislation that's been turned into public law. And so when I say I'm trying to build out this enterprise uh, and using the Levinson Act as kind of my guiding, uh, my principle, what we're trying to do is take, to take anyone who could be attached to this and over-communicate with them, build those sinews between the State Department, the uh, the intelligence agencies, the Department of Defense, and NGOs, there are NGOs out here like the Foley Foundation, for example, or Hostage US who do nothing but this, so we want to have a strong relationship with them. The media, there are reporters out, out there who cover this topic with great integrity, so we want to make sure we're communicating with them. Information sometimes goes both ways, right? Uh, we also want to talk to what we call third party interlockers, people like, uh, I'll, I'll give a shout out to Governor Richardson. He's been incredible in trying to help us uh, make headway in some of our cases but also some incredible lawyers out there and advocates who are tireless in their pursuit of justice and bringing people home. Uh, so we're, I guess if I were to say number three is probably my hardest uh, task, um, that might seem silly because it's almost, almost impossible, it seems nowadays, to bring someone home from a really tough country, but we pursue it. But the reason I say, in a way, uh, three is the hardest task is because we're trying to create something that's not yet been done. We've been at this for six years now, but we're not where we want to be. So, you know, we're pushing hard to build these relationships because once we really uh, create a, uh, a robust, connected hostage recovery enterprise, I think we're going to have much, a lot more, as we would say in the Army, combat power to bring people home and take care of their families. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, the truly the core task is get
0: people home. Right. The core task is very straightforward. The means to accomplishing that, as you've begun to lay out it's not straightforward. It's very difficult. Could you say a word about that? All the, and using government speak again, all the various stakeholders and how yeah. it is that they have competing interests and it may not always look like they we're working together.
1: Yeah. So a good example, and I actually I won't use a real country because it'll probably get me in trouble, but you <laughs> could have country X and at the State Department, you could have a group of people that do nothing but work from DC on country X. And then you could have a US ambassador who lives in country X and is working on US policy in that country. So there's already a policy that the United States of America is enacting in country X. And there could be Department of Defense components, intelligence components, uh, treasury, commerce, et cetera. There's like a whole of government thing that's happening in this country, uh, that, that this notional country that I'm talking about. And let's say a, a person is taken hostage there or taken as a wrongfully detained person. Uh, So this might not be a country that we're actually friends with. It could be someplace like Iran, Russia, or China, what have you. Um, I can't just parachute in there and fly in and say, hey, I'm here to get this guy out. You know, this is something that I have to work with people, as you said, all the stakeholders, to make sure that I'm in alignment with the president's policies and to make sure that when we actually say something or do something, we, we bring the full weight of the U.S. government to bear. And there's a strength in that. Um, You might think that if I were to show up in a country and just kind of, you know, uh, figuratively parachute in, I'd be able to cut through all the bureaucracy and just pull someone out, just do on my strength, good looks and charisma. But at the end of the day, that's just not how it works. You know, you really want to walk in and when you say something, the other side almost smells that you have the full weight of the government. Because in talking to some of these people, and I have, some of these people are not necessarily the nicest people. They might be tough guys, they might have blood in their hands, they might come from a, a dictatorship or what have you, and they smell weakness and they smell strength. you know. And if you walk in there have not, having not dotted your I's and, uh, and crossed your T's and have not communicated with your compadres, your, your, your colleagues in other parts of the government, then you're going to be playing a very weak hand and the other side's going to know it.
0: This was my experience when I met you. I did some research beforehand looked at your your resume your bio this all seems fairly straightforward west point fought in some wars did some great work overseas what what's this a master's in liberal arts from saint john's college you've already given a bit of an answer but why did you decide to go there was it was it one moment that something happened and you said oh i should go do this or was it just sort of building up to it
1: yeah a little bit of both um so the building up to it, when I was uh, 17 or maybe 16-ish, I don't really remember, I, I do what a lot of kids do, and you go around and visit some of the colleges that you might attend. So I went to West Point, I went to the U.S. Naval Academy, went to a few other places. And when I was at the Naval Academy, I can remember um, you know, walking out and actually pointing to a campus across the street and saying, is that part of the Naval Academy? Because it's on the other side of a wall. And someone said, no, that's St. John's College. I said, what, what's, what's that about? And the person who was uh, giving me the tour told me a little bit about St. John's, uh, how old it was, what they did there. And, and I'll be darned if I didn't spend probably the rest of my life thinking about, man, <laughs> I, should, I should have gone there. You know, to read the great books, to study Latin, to study ancient Greek, to read these texts and wrestle with them. You know, I, I always thought that that would be an incredible thing to do. And so even as I was probably in my 20s, 30s, and 40s, Uh, I would often toy with the idea of heading back to St. John's and and trying to at least knock out a master's degree there Mm -hmm. to to read some of the books uh, that I've wanted to read. Secondly, um, if you were to come to my house, you'd see all the great books. I mean, they're all over the shelves. And there was a point where I stared at them and I thought, oh my goodness, I'm going to die and never have read Plato's Republic or never have checked out Heidegger or never have dug into Nietzsche or never have read Heraclitus. You You see all these books and they call to you at least they called to me. And so I felt like, you know, I was going to burn through my savings and go to St. John's and spend some time with these, these great works. And I think in terms of a point, I think it really did come. And it wasn't like a crystal clear thing, but it was after coming back from uh, Somalia and Afghanistan where I just recognized that I had a, a hunger to, to dig deeper in, into, as I said earlier, what it means to be a human. Um, you know, was, uh, my, my spiritual side I spend a lot of time wrestling with the Bible you know, every day, and I really enjoy it. But I think there was a part of me that wanted to see what other people had been wrestling with all these years. Because I, I, I guess I cannot look at a document like the Constitution and not think of the people who wrote it. And you and I have talked about this before. What went into that? What were these people trained in? What books did they read yeah. that created this document? What, what path did civilization take? that brought us to that point where the social contract became what eventually became an American experience? You know, what what kind of hiccups and and such happened? And and for certainly not knowing much about it at the time, how did Greece, uh, how did that path go from ancient Greece all the way to the United States of America? And who were the writers and thinkers that made that happen?
0: So even at 17 and 18, you knew that the great books were something worth devoting a life studying. Where did Absolutely. that come from? This was your parents, or? Oh
1: my goodness, that's really a scary question because I've never even thought about that. I would say, um, <laughs> you know, um, in a way, no. My parents were incredibly um, nurturing and and really gave me quite a lot and still do. Um, but I, I, I guess that's a question I've not wrestled with. I, I just something that deep down I knew that uh, I would like to, s- to sit and read the great books. Mm. Uh, I think I knew of them, didn't know much of them, uh, knew of them but didn't know them. I should say. Sure. Uh, And I always like reading. Um, So I just thought, you know, sitting around reading what the ancient Greeks had to say and learning a language, maybe it's that thing that interested me in special forces in a way too, where you may not entirely know what they do, but you know that they're supposed to free people and they speak foreign languages. So maybe there's something in in us that draws us to certain places. And I've had friends say that uh, for the most part in life, you end up going where you're supposed to go. Mm. You just got to kind of listen. And I think even at 17, maybe not knowing why, I think St. John's was calling to me, and certainly
0: those great books were. And so when you, you step foot in the classroom, and this is fun to me, here you are, you're how, 46, 47? Think, eh, roughly, yeah, maybe even 48-ish, yeah. Okay, yeah. And, and you show up, and I'm right now you have this great, grizzled <laughs> beard and long, flowing hair. You look like the way a Special Forces guy should look. So you step foot in this classroom. What was that like? Were the other students your age, what were their backgrounds like, were you a fish out of water? You no, know, it wasn't because
1: uh, St. John's, is, uh, the master's program is interesting in that, uh, and they'll tell you, one third of the people are recent graduates, they're in their 20s. One third, kind of people like me, you know, uh, uh, 50 and under to like 50 to 30, and then one third are from 50 to 70, or even, maybe even 80. So. Mm-hmm. I sat down, I remember uh, uh, my first night uh, studying the Iliad from like uh, 6 o'clock till 10 o'clock. And I looked around the room and that was the breakout. There were a few 70-year-olds there that were studying to get their master's. Um, some young people as well and people more my age. But what I really liked about it was it was so welcoming and that, you know, I never felt like I had to do anything else but be me. Mm. And I made some incredible friendships. Uh, in fact, I don't know if I can give a shout, shout out to a person, I guess with a Privacy Act waiver issues, but, you know, probably my best friend uh, that I made at St. John's, not even probably, my best friend I made at St. John's was a recent graduate of Notre Dame, a guy named A.J. DelBene. And I spent so much time just talking about the books with him and, and you know, uh, hanging out with him. And here I am, you know, I could be his father, you know, it's like double his age. And yet the connection I established with him and, and some of the other students are, they'll stay with me until the day I die. And the things we talked about were the things that truly animate me. So when I'm talking to AJ, I'm not talking about, you know, what I might have talked about at West Point with those guys. I'm talking about the, these, the great ideas, the great works, what is important in life. And it, it was very special to me. So really to truncate it, because uh, I've talked long enough, but I think the uh, in showing up at St. John's, I felt like um, the age thing wasn't a problem due to the split of ages but I felt like I could just show up in jeans and a t-shirt and, and wrestle with these ideas and be accepted for who I was and what I was bringing to the table. No one felt intimidated or threatened by the 50-year-old at all. Instead, if anything, um,
0: no one cared. It was more like, we're here to study the great books. Let's get after it. Yeah. How do you think your military experience, or do you think it especially prepared you for these great books in any way?
1: You know, only because I'd uh, walked so many battlefields, I think uh, I was maybe more attuned to some of the writing. Not, not always, um, but I remember reading the Iliad. There was a scene where, um, I'd say like maybe halfway through the book, that the, the, the class was wrestling with. Uh, and it, it, was, uh, it was clear to me what was going on. It was essentially a tribal conflict in this one, this one particular scene um, and I've just seen it in either Somalia or Afghanistan. Somalia, where um, any kid can probably go down thirty-two generations to yeah. tell you about who his ancestors were, or Afghanistan, where tribes will, uh, you know, defend what's theirs to to the very death. But also, when you make friendships, they make incredibly strong bonds. And in seeing this one scene, but also reading the Iliad and, and some of these other books, I'm like, yeah, that that's, that is something that I'm familiar with because I've spent life dealing with this and if anything not only did it inform how I looked at the Iliad but the Iliad actually helped me uh, informed me retrospectively how to think of some of the things that I thought of so I found st. John's at times providing me with the keys to make sense of some things that I may not have quite understood as I was walking them but when you go through a few wars or or, or even some uh, just getting old period you know when you're 50 you can do anything by the time you're 50 you've seen something of life And when you read uh, Herodotus or you read uh, Hegel or uh, Kant or or, uh, Marx and Engels, um, the books, in a way, are interesting in that it does explain things, but you've also, again, walked through some of these paths and seen some of these uh, foreign policy decisions, for example, uh, or seen some of the human condition. So I think there was a give and take with St. John's in explaining what I'd been through, but also um, informing how I looked at the texts, and maybe helping me, hopefully, to lead the rest of my life.
0: You've given me a bit of a segue here, and I don't want to take too instrumental of a view of a liberal arts education. I want to be careful there. I know you don't see it this way, yeah. but I am curious. How do you think this education prepared you professionally?
1: You know, um, I thought a lot about that, actually. Um, I actually uh, thought about writing heavily on it, and I always pulled back because I, I, I didn't want to come off just as kind of you intimated. Um, and that the liberal arts is the be-all end-all. So West Point was really great because they actually have a, a strong liberal arts program mashed into a strong engineering program. But as you go through St. John's and you, you, know, you, you, read the, you go through the math and science portion, if you could call it that, in St. John's, you know, for example, Euclid's Elements, you realize that some of the people who were the great thinkers uh, back during the uh, time of the ancient Greeks, they were striving to understand science in this natural world, and they were doing it through philosophy, and they were trying to get the mathematical and scientific uh, uh, tools to make sense of what they were dealing with. And I don't think I appreciated that when I was at West Point. Instead, I'm the one that suffered horribly when I studied, I, I gave probability and statistics or, or what we called thermo or electrical engineering. And now I look back and realize that uh, I think I might have squandered it by not totally embracing the math, science, and engineering portion of West Point. Mm. Having said that, when I think about the liberal arts portion of St. John's, um, I I walked away wishing that decision makers perhaps took some time off and read some of the great books themselves. Um, I think some of the leaders that I've had the honor and pleasure of working with or working for would honestly benefit by reading uh, Plato's Republic or Heraclitus or Aristotle's Metaphysics. You know, there are these books that wrestle with these human conditions. And as I kind of intimated when I think about Afghanistan, we applied a lot of math, science, and engineering. You know, bombs on target, drones, uh, different weaponry, uh, force ratios, blah, 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 blah. But I think sometimes you win these wars or, or, or solve the problem by taking a more human approach, connecting with someone at a very human level. And I don't think, uh, I'll say, I think you do yourself a great service when you read these books and try to connect with other people through them. So, uh, what what would I say about it? Never could force it upon anyone, but I think if you were going to a national war college, of which there are a few, I think if there was a heavy uh, humanities portion or a liberal arts portion, I, I think that would benefit senior leaders from any branch of the
0: U.S. government. I would be willing to bet that this is the first time Aristotle's metaphysics has been cited at the U.S. Department of State.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame. It's an incredible book. Oh my goodness, I've read that with a highlighter like twice.
0: Do, do you have a favorite book, from either from your time at mm. St. John's or beyond? So I've
1: thought about that, and I think it's like reading the Bible. Uh, there are days when Genesis is the one for me. Um, there are other days when it's Romans or Hebrews, or I'll think back to uh, you know how I, I churned through all the prophets. Um, it depends on where you are in your life and what you're doing. And I think the same with St. John's. I mean, uh, to this day, I would count as one of my favorites, uh, Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling. Mm. I thought, um, in a way, that's kind of a St. John's-like book in that he takes like one or two sentences of an experience of a biblical character and then writes a whole book around it. And that's kind of something that I appreciate about St. John's, to take a sentence in the Iliad, for example, where someone's dead but they're still in a chariot and their bodies continuing in motion and the the author writes that the the dead soldier who's still kind of standing his head kind of canted that way and then i remember like talking about that for an hour and a half like why why did the author write that why did his head cant that way and i felt fear and trembling was uh like that and that you take a very a, a few sentences and then like what did that mean what why did this happen what does this mean in terms of our faith And I think it also uh, brought to uh, the fore a deep question that I have always appreciated, that the difference between being and becoming. Mm. And some people, uh, I think in the written form, will say you're either one or the other. And uh, to me, Kierkegaard was offering that we do both at the same time, at all times. Having said that, I enjoyed Plato's Republic. Um, I know it's kind of a go-to favorite, but uh, I, I, I love the allegory of the cave. And I think about that quite often. Like, if what 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 is the duty and responsibility for someone who may think they have figured something out? Do you go on and live your life, or is then your job to go? You know, as I said, free the oppressed yeah. by trying to express those ideas. And so I think uh, when I think of uh, the allegory of the cave, I've certainly wanted to live my life that way, but it definitely t- talks to the motivations of journalists, of human rights activists, of uh, people who run for political office. You know, if if you think you have a solution and it's going to benefit your fellow man, there's almost a responsibility to go do something with it. Um, Having said that, I really enjoyed Marx and Engels. I think I talked about, uh, I mentioned them just a a few minutes ago. Their writings are, uh, I just, number one, brilliant writing. Number two, an incredible explanation of their theories, which, of course, I don't agree with. But I, I, I think I was spellbound by... Their arguments and the clarity of of their thought in reading uh, that Nietzsche um, philosophy in the tragic age of the Greeks I've probably read that three or four times because of his wit his sense of humor and his ability to kind of distill what the ancient Greeks were trying to get at as they were writing all these books Uh, and yet the ancient Greeks are wonderful too I love Heraclitus the fragments Anaximander Anaxagoras when they were writing before philosophy was really like locked in. I I had a teacher named uh, Howard Ziderman, who still teaches out there, and I took a Heraclitus class, and he posed that question. He's like, uh, what do these ancient philosophers have, and what were they wrestling with before Aristotle and Plato came in and kind of locked philosophy down into a more hardened thing? Mm. You know, what were people wrestling about, or with rather, before the the Great Ones came and, and kind of solidified the philosophical field? And under his leadership, that was probably the most interesting class I took, uh, wrestling with the ancient Greeks who were, in a way, just trying to find their voice because we're looking at you know, 500 BC, some of them coming from the coast of Turkey, others coming from uh, the, the coastal parts of Greece. So no favorite book, but um, I would say depending on where I am in a phase of my life, I'll go pull a certain book off, uh, off the, uh, the shelf and, and start perusing through it again.
0: I'm going to dip into the archives here. And I'm quoting you Uh-oh. in an interview you gave to St. John's College oh, no. back in 2015. <laughs> quote, I'm here as part of a continuing quest to really figure out what life is about. What my purpose is, what the meaning is, and what it is to lead a good and committed life. End quote. How goes the quest?
1: You know, I think, I think I'm closer. I think I've also... Um, I'm trying to wrestle with uh, synthesizing that answer into my work life, family life, intellectual life, and spiritual life. I think um, spiritually, um, and I 'll throw it out there as a, as a Christian, I think that over fifty almost fifty years of reading the Bible and eh, maybe forty five years of reading the Bible, I think uh, I've come to the conclusion that my job on earth is to glorify God, you know, to, to have a relationship with him and do everything in a way that reflects him. Uh, and glorifies him. Uh, I think I need to stretch that into other areas of my life too. Um, in other words, to build out from there into the work life and and the the family life, etc. If I were to allow other texts to come in, and I do, uh, I would think St. John's um, probably allowed me to see into the the soul or the, uh, I guess, the essence of man, in a way that I, I don't think I could have done anywhere else. I mean, you don't really find people kind of ripping apart the human condition like you do the greats. And that's the reason why they are. You know, if you read Thomas Aquinas, uh, for example, or you read um, uh, Pascal, uh, or you read Descartes, or, you know, all these books, people are really wrestling with what it means to be human. And they're the greatest, some of the greatest thinkers that, that God's put on this earth. And so to read their thoughts and to see how they looked into the soul of man, I felt it's been very instructive, inspiring sometimes uh, depressing, but I I will never put down a book that I've read at St. John's or that's been on their their reading list where I don't walk away feeling like I have a better understanding of what it
0: means to be human. Yeah. You've had some remarkable life experiences. You've read deeply, obviously, as our listeners can tell, thought very deeply and experienced so much. What advice do you have for young people?
1: Uh, I would say read. You know, I think, uh, uh, there's uh, a lot to read nowadays and whether it's Twitter and I get caught up in that Twitter reading a Politico reading the New York Times uh, I tell you I get exhausted at night and uh, I'll go home and uh, I'll watch cartoons with my son you know I get home sometimes like 8 30 or 9 if my son's awake we'll sit down there and I'll just like vegetate what should I do go to go go to bed <laughs> and read a book as I'm falling asleep right so yeah my advice would be to, to read deeply and think deeply uh, if you're a young professional, you need to start writing, mm. you know, n- not only is it good for uh, a person to master his thoughts, but frankly, if you want to get promoted nowadays, uh, it, it's a smart thing to exhibit clarity of written of written thought. Um, yeah, but other than that, I would just say to young people, be curious, be moral, uh, do some reading and and be kind and good and love your neighbor.
0: Well, there's not a better note for us to end on, Roger. Thank you so very much for joining us today on Madison's notes.
1: Uh, you know, I got to thank you. It's a, uh, as I said, sometimes I come into this building and it's, uh, you know, you work tough jobs that that at times can be heart wrenching, and it's a pleasure to sit and talk about these these thoughts and kind of remind myself a little bit of of the very reason that I'm here. So thank you for allowing me that uh, that chance to to reconnect with why I'm sitting in this awesome building, working with these incredible people. Thank
0: Thank you, you, Roger. There you have it, folks. The great Roger Carstens, Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs, Lover of Humanity, and the Great Books. It was a stroke of great good fortune to meet Roger while working at the Department of State, and I'm so grateful to have had him on the podcast and introduce him to all of you. I don't have anything else to add today, so we'll go ahead and close the proceedings here. Thanks as always for joining us, and I hope to have you back with us next time, here on Madison's Notes.